Welcome to Mind the Gap, where we break down some common dogmas and dive deeper into things we may take for granted. This is Dr. Shreya Trivedi, a hospitalist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Jason Fried, a hematologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Jason, I got a question on rounds today by one of my senior residents, and I actually didn't know where to even look up this answer. So naturally, I came to you. It's not technically a heme question, but I figured it's up your alley. Shreya, you know I love questions that are hard to Google because there's so few of them these days. So I'm intrigued. Yeah. What was the question? Okay. So we had this patient who required a transfusion and his hemoglobin didn't bump up the next day. So we got into this whole discussion how we're often taught that the hemoglobin should go up by one gram per deciliter, or if you're in Canada, 10 grams per liter. I didn't even know where this comes from or if that's actually even true. Right. This idea that hemoglobin should always bump up by one gram per deciliter from one unit of red cells seems like such a convenient thing, like almost too convenient, like suspiciously convenient. (laughs) Exactly. And that's maybe even more reason for us to unpack this question that seems to get dropped on the daily, right? Did that patient's hemoglobin bump up, quote unquote, appropriately? All right, Shreya. So First, we have to go on a journey and actually break down where the one gram per deciliter appropriate bump comes from. Heads up, there's going to be math, but I promise you, you will leave with a more nuanced understanding that you can apply to patients in front of you. Right. And if that math goes over your head, no worries. I will make sure we pause and summarize throughout. And then we'll end up applying those concepts to different types of patients. All right. I am so excited. I trust you, Jason. I'm ready for this journey. Let's do it. So in order to understand the answer, we have to think about where units of blood come from. So let me ask you this, Shreya. Have you ever donated blood? Yeah, a bunch of times. Do you remember how much blood they took? You know, I wasn't paying attention, to be honest. I was probably snagging free cookies and not looking at the blood. Fair enough. So the standard blood donation in the United States is 525 milliliters. 500 is for the donation, and 25 milliliters is for testing your blood to make sure it's safe. Okay, so I'm donating about 500 mLs or so. How do I then figure out whether that's going to raise someone's hemoglobin by one gram per deciliter? Well, we need to know your hemoglobin. So what's your hemoglobin? Hmm, I think the last time I went to PCP, gosh, it was so long ago. Maybe it was about 13 grams per deciliter, somewhere around there. Okay, 13 grams per deciliter. And it's going to be good to use that grams per deciliter and keep that in mind as we walk through the calculations. Because deciliter is such a weird volume. Yeah. I mean, I can picture what a liter is. Right, right. I I haven't thought about deciliters in a pretty long time. And I think when I think about it and move the decimals around, a deciliter is basically a tenth of a liter. Exactly a tenth of a liter. And I promise you, it's worth diving into the units. Because once I started paying attention to the units, it was kind of like at the end of the matrix where Neo starts seeing the world as those green letters. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciating the units just makes the connections between things much more apparent. Okay, Neo. Okay, Neo. I will respect the units. So maybe I'll take a stab then at how many grams of hemoglobin I'm donating if my hemoglobin is 13 grams per deciliter. Go for it. Okay. So bear with me with the math, but I kind of need to break it down myself. So if I'm donating 500 milliliters of blood, which if I move my decimals around is basically five deciliters of blood, And then I take the 13 grams of deciliters I have and multiply that by five deciliters that I'm donating. That's 65 grams of hemoglobin that I'm donating. Yes, 65 grams of hemoglobin. Great. 
So does this patient actually get the full 65 grams of hemoglobin from my donation? Well, processing, storage, refrigeration, they all take a toll. And so only about 85% of the red cells are viable after transfusion. Okay, so then I need to multiply that 65 grams of hemoglobin by 85%. So now I'm down to 55 grams of functional hemoglobin that I'm actually giving. Yep, so functionally, that takes it down to 55 grams of hemoglobin actually staying in the patient. Okay, so now we've got this 55 grams of functional hemoglobin. How do we then figure out how much the hemoglobin is going to bump up in this patient? Well, you need to know the patient's intravascular volume. Wait, doesn't the intravascular volume depend on how big the patient is? Exactly. So that one-to-one quote-unquote appropriate bump can't be the right answer for everyone. Nope. Ah, how come I never thought of this before? I'm the same way. I probably gave a thousand transfusions before I'd even considered this. Okay. Then, Jason, how do you figure out how much a patient's intravascular volume is? We have to go back to physiology class and think about body fluid compartments. So two-thirds of the body weight is water, and one-third of that water is extracellular, and one-third of that extracellular space is intravascular volume. So you may just have to trust me on the math here, but to get the intravascular volume, we would multiply all of that. So to do the math, it's two-thirds times one-third times one-third. We get two over 27, which is about 7%. Okay, so about 7% of someone's body weight is blood. Yeah, it's a good rule of thumb to remember. Blood volume is about 7% of your body weight. And technically, it's about 6.5% for women and 7.5% for men, and that averages to 7%. Hmm, okay. So say I have a 70-kilogram male patient. So 7.5% of his weight is blood, and so that means he has 5.25 liters of blood. Yes. Now, technically, you're also going to need to account for the volume of the blood that you just transfused that's now also in that intravascular volume. Hmm. Wouldn't that be the initial 500 mLs of blood that I donated? Well, even though you donated 500 milliliters of whole blood, only about 350 milliliters remain in a unit of packed red blood cells because you've removed a lot of platelets and plasma. So really the math is 5.25 liters plus about 350 milliliters, and that gets us to 5.6 liters. Okay, so to recap, I know I'm donating 55 grams of viable hemoglobin, and this patient has 5.6 liters of blood after a transfusion. So then what is the quote-unquote appropriate bump in grams per deciliter that I'm expecting? Now it's just a matter of concentration. You divide the grams of hemoglobin you're donating by the blood volume of the patient. And the math works out great. The 55 grams of hemoglobin donation divided by 5.6 liters, which we're going to make 5.5 liters to make the math easy. Thank you. So 55 divided by 5.5 is 10. So with the units, that is 10 grams of hemoglobin per liter, aka 1 gram per deciliter. Ah, so that is where the hemoglobin bump of 1 gram per deciliter comes from. It is so satisfying when the rule kind of pans out like that. Yeah, it's really nice. So let's just recap how we got here. You donated 500 milliliters of whole blood, and we multiplied that times your hemoglobin to figure out how many grams of hemoglobin you donated. And then we multiplied it by 0.85 because that's the fraction that will remain viable. Then we divided it by the patient's intravascular volume. And if you have a donor whose hemoglobin is 13 grams per deciliter like Shreya, and a patient who is that prototypical 70-kilogram male, that gives us one gram per deciliter bump per unit of red blood cells. Nice. 
but hey, what if me as a donor, what if my hemoglobin wasn't 13? What if it was 11? Then I'm guessing that patient's hemoglobin wouldn't bump up by one, right? It only bump up by a fraction of that. You're right. The donor matters. And that's why they're screening of the donors. The FDA standard is 12.5 grams per deciliter for women and 13 grams per deciliter for men. But of course, some people are higher than that. But wait, how do I find out the hemoglobin of the donor blood that my patient's getting? You can't. What? You can't. I mean, theoretically, blood donations could come labeled with the hemoglobin of the donor, but they don't. Ah, that's crazy. Now I feel like I'm just giving this like drug of an unknown dose after breaking all that down. <laughs> yeah, it really is a drug of unknown dose. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So Jason, I love that in theory, all this math pans out, but has anyone actually studied whether all this theoretical stuff shakes out in real life? Amazingly, it took a really long time for anyone to look at this in a robust way. But there was this incredible paper published in Blood in September 2019 on this topic by Rubinian et al. And I've been talking about that paper ever since it was published to anyone who would listen. Whoa, do tell. So what the authors did is they connected the Kaiser Permanente clinical database with their blood bank database so they could see how both the donor characteristics and patient characteristics affected how much the hemoglobin would go up after transfusion. They were basically trying to put the one gram per deciliter per one unit of red cells rule to the test in a large database of 38,000 different transfusions. So did that one-to-one rule pan out? Yes and no. (laughs) Okay. Explain that a bit more. Well, on average, there was a bump of 1.04 grams per deciliter. So it really is a good rule of thumb. Nice. Then what's the catch? Well, for the reasons we just talked about, the characteristics of the donor and the patient matter a great deal. They were even able to derive a formula from their data to predict how much the hemoglobin will go up with one unit of blood. Great. Another formula to remember. Well, you don't need to remember it because what they saw in real life basically validated the calculations we just did. Nice. So what do they find? Well, in terms of donor factors that mattered, one of the largest was the sex of the donor, which is not that surprising because we know that men tend to have higher hemoglobins on average due to the effect of testosterone. But then there was some stuff that they didn't expect at all, like Rh-positive donors resulted in a slightly higher hemoglobin bump for reasons the authors couldn't really explain. Hmm, that's so weird. Who would think the Rh status matters that much? What about the patient, Jason? What characteristics of the patient matter? The body size of the patient. So the bigger the patient, the less the hemoglobin went up. Hmm, that makes a ton of sense, especially now thinking about that teaching point that everyone's intravascular volume is different based on their weight. Anything else? There's also how the donated blood is processed, like irradiation, which sort of makes sense to me because radiation could cause less viable red cells. Yeah, it's definitely something I didn't think about before, but now it makes a lot of sense. Now, every time I click on irradiated blood, I probably shouldn't expect that hemoglobin to go up by one. Exactly. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, It feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost 
from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash Coriam50. Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash Coriam50. So the meta nerd in me loves cementing things a bit more. And I think it'd be really good to apply some of this and solidify it with some donor and patient characteristics and go through some cases. Happily. Table 7 of this paper is really impressive. They basically use their formula to say, on average, how much the hemoglobin should go up in two different situations. So the first one, they have a Rh-negative female donating irradiated red cells to a 60-year-old man who has a BMI of 30. And in that scenario, the hemoglobin would only go up by 0.59 grams per deciliter on average. 0.59 grams per deciliter? That is a lot less than one. And a BMI of 30 isn't even that high. And they give a second example for contrast. So if, on the other hand, you have an Rh-positive male donating non-irradiated blood to an 85-year-old woman with a BMI of 18, her hemoglobin would go up by 1.65 grams per deciliter. Dang. So on one hand, you have a 0.59 gram per deciliter bump in a mildly obese man on the oncology floor receiving irrated blood from a woman. And then on the other hand, you have a whopping 1.65 gram per deciliter bump in a thin older woman on the medicine floor is receiving non-irrated blood. I feel like this is my like neo moment <laughs> coming up. <laughs> Welcome to the matrix, Shreya. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask you, did they bump appropriately? Yeah. And I guess next time someone asks me that age old question, I'm just going to say it really depends. All right, so let's try to summarize here. The one gram per deciliter rule is correct on average for adults, but for a given patient and a unit of blood, it could be anywhere from 0.6 to 1.6 bump after a transfusion. And there's a bunch of factors that go into that, right? So there's the amount of hemoglobin the donor is actually giving. Then there's the patient characteristics. And I think for me, this is the biggest thing I'll pay attention to next time I'm on floors and giving a transfusion is thinking about the size of the patient. Right, so the bigger the patient, technically they have more intravascular volume. And so the less I will expect the hemoglobin concentration to go up in that intravascular space. Shreya, you are ready for rounds tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So that's going to do it for this week's episode. Stay tuned after the credits if you want some additional details on the content we discussed today. Yes, if you're really one of those nerds and wants to know a bit more about PRBCs, we're going to go over a few more points. If you found this episode helpful, please share with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people find us. And if you have feedback or questions, please email us at hello at quarrympodcast.com. Thank you to our peer reviewer, Dr. Bentley Rodrigue. Thank you to Solon Kelleher for the outstanding audio editing and to Priel Patel for the infographic that is so helpful, especially with the math. I know I'll be pulling it up often on rounds. As always, opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions. All right, so for those of you that stuck around and can't get enough of all things PRBCs, here's a few points of clarification. Number one, the rule of 7% of body weight being intravascular volume holds fairly well for patients with a normal BMI, 
But the question is, does that scale up linearly? In other words, does a 300-pound patient have twice as much blood volume as a 150-pound patient? And the answer to that is no. Right. And so the reason for that is that if that extra weight in that 300-pound patient is majority adipose tissue, then what we should know is that adipose tissue is less vascular than other tissues. So we can expect patients with more adipose tissue to have less intravascular volume. Yes. So the 300-pound patient actually probably has only 1.5 times as much blood volume, not twice as much as a 150-pound patient. Hmm. And if you're trying to get a good estimate, there are more sophisticated prediction tools available online. Oh, that's good. I didn't know that. Great. All right. So number two, we did a lot of math around donations. And a lot of that was thinking about whole blood, which is the most common source of packed red blood cells in the United States. But about 20% or so are actually collected by apheresis. And in case you need a refresher of what that is, that's basically donating pure red blood cells. And so this matters because if you're at a place that does a lot of apheresis, you can expect the donation from apheresis collections to result in a slightly lower hemoglobin bump than whole blood. Number three, Shreya donated 500 milliliters of whole blood, but the bag of packed red blood cells you see hanging up for a patient is only about 350 milliliters. So why is that? What happens is we take off most of the plasma and platelets, and often it goes through leukoreduction to get rid of white blood cells. So the 350 milliliter bag is about 200 milliliters of red cells, 50 milliliters of residual plasma, and then about 100 milliliters of preservative solution. Great. And remind us what's in that preservative solution. So there's citrate, so it doesn't clot, adenine and phosphate, so the cells can make ATP, and dextrose so that the cells don't starve. Nice. That is good to know. All right, and last but not least, one of the things that we did as an early step was going through the fact that, yes, I donated 65 grams of hemoglobin, but that went down to a functional 55 grams. And if you really want to know where the rest of that hemoglobin goes, it's actually what people in the blood bank world call quote unquote storage lesions. So unfortunately, a subset of RBCs actually degenerate into non-viable tiny RBCs called storage microerythrocytes. And then as soon as they hit the circulation, the spleen and hepatic macrophage is going to gobble them up so they don't meaningfully contribute to the hemoglobin of the patient. And now that's really a wrap for this episode, for real this time. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) Take care. We'll start that over. Weird. Who would have think, who would have thinked? Start over. Maybe you could just say a mic drop. (laughs) Shreya. You can just drop the microphone. Wait, no, that sounds weird. (laughs) The only small thing is that you said that they were tiny PRBCs. Ah, ah. What's what's wrong with PRBCs? Because they're not tiny packed red cells. They're just tiny red cells in this. The the P is the packing, which is like the centrifuging. Oh. Um, Yeah. Man, this is going to be in our blooper because it's also an extra nugget. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.